Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now we're going to start this episode with some news of a competition. So we've got something to give away and I'm going to give you all the details now. Family Fun Unplugged by Peter Cosgrove is a back to basics book full of riddles, brain teasers, quizzes and more designed to give parents and kids alike a much needed detox from their screens and help them to have fun together without their devices. Whether at gatherings with friends, at dinner with family or even on a rainy Saturday afternoon, you can put your phone away and have hours of fun, laughter and puzzlement for every age. And to celebrate the publication of Family Fun Unplugged, Penguin Ireland are giving you the chance to win an entertainment hamper worth €150, including classic board games, activities, arts and crafts and of course a copy of Family Fun Unplugged. Now to enter, all you have to do is email Email us. We want to hear your best distractions from screens, the things that you do in your family, whether they're games or they're little diversions that always work and help to to get the family's noses out of the computers, the laptops, the devices. Um, So tell us about those. You can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. That's the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. And the one that I find the best or the funniest or the most innovative will win that brilliant hamper and again that book is called Family Fun Unplugged and I tell you something I can't recommend it highly enough it's excellent. Now later on in the episode we're going to be talking to women who have benefited from the Monona Heron Women of Ireland Fund which is the first fund in the country set up specifically to increase the economic mobility of women. But first, we wanted to mark the end of Breast Cancer Awareness Month by talking to a survivor of the illness who now volunteers in workplaces and in schools to educate women and girls about early detection signs of breast cancer. Jer Collins is 46. She's from Donabate, County Dublin. And she was so grateful for the help that she received following a diagnosis of breast cancer. She's now sharing her experiences with teachers and transition year students as part of volunteering work that she's doing with Breast Cancer Ireland. And she's supporting a new initiative backed by Into and supported by insurance brokers Corn Market. It's called the Breast Health Education and Awareness Programme. And I'm so glad to say Jer came in to talk to us and I learned a few things about breast cancer awareness. Ger, thank you very much for coming in to see us today. You had an experience that many women in Ireland have had and it led you to kind of want to give back. Tell us about, first of all, your experience and then how you've kind of, you're, you're helping other people. Okay, so my story starts four years ago when I found a lump in my breast that I knew wasn't there before. And um, I um, subsequently went to Beaumont Hospital and had my triple assessment done and um, I... Uh, 
discovered that I had breast cancer. So um, I went through my treatments and after my treatment, I wanted to give something back. Um, I always use the word gratitude for life after cancer. And I'm so grateful to be here and I just wanted to give something back. So I contacted Breast Cancer Ireland and I volunteer with them now um, and I travel around with the coordinator and outreach nurse and we go to women in the workplace and to TY students and we go through the eight signs and symptoms of breast cancer um, and we show them how to do a proper breast check and then I give my story of how if I hadn't found the lump I would never have known I had cancer and I wouldn't be here as well as I am today. And did you find the lump because you knew all those eight signs and you knew how to search no, yourself No, I didn't properly. know all the eight signs but <laughs> I knew that a lump wasn't there before and suddenly appeared wasn't good. So, I mean, I literally turned on the lights after I found it and I googled the symptoms of breast cancer because I knew this was not right. You know, I think it was just an instinct of myself. I knew that this wasn't normal and wasn't there before. So, I mean, I still today, I'm so grateful that I found that lump, you know. But when you go around talking to people about it, so what is it that you know that you're helping with? What are the kind of misconceptions that you encounter? Well, I suppose one of the things I always say, a dimple on a breast is a sign of breast cancer, you know. And I mean, how would you know a dimple on a breast is a sign of breast cancer unless you're told it, you know. Well, that's so the I just first think time I've ever heard that. Education is key, you know. Uh, you know, unless you're told something, how can you possibly know, you know. So I think that's what it is, is to get the message across about what the eight signs and symptoms of breast cancer are and how to do a proper breast check. Not the Irish way of breast check and like we say, where they tap boob lightly and then move on, you know, that a proper breast check, you know. Because early detection is survival and I'm proof of that, you know. And when you talk, let's go back to this Irish detection, this yes. little gentle... Little gentle tap, that's it, done now, you know, oh, move and on. And is that a particularly know? Irish thing, do you think? I think so, yeah. Tell you me know. more about yeah, that. Yeah, well, seemingly, we would meet a lot of... Um, you know, um, women from other countries and we go to companies and, you know, a lot of them, I mean, we met a girl from Brazil the other day who goes home every year and would have a proper mammogram done and, uh, you know, her cervical smear test done as well. And they just seem to be, you know, more on the ball in ways, whereas Irish women, I think, are petrified of what they'd find, you know, and it's just it's to get that message across to them that, you know, as I always say, you can't control whether you get breast cancer, but you can control how quickly you catch it. Why do you think they're particularly Irish women are petrified? What, what would lead into that? Yeah, I suppose it's just not knowing what's ahead of them, you know, and the fear of, oh, my God, cancer. It's just that word, you know. You know, I know myself when I heard it, you know, it just puts the fear of God in you and you just think, oh, my God. You know, I mean, I'll always remember when I when Arnie Hill told me that I had breast cancer, I just asked him straight out, was I dying? And he said, you're not dying, Jerry, you're treatable and fixable, but it's a year out of your life. You know, my boys were eight, 10 and 12 at the time. So my priority was all about them, you know. And you, uh, for you, it was very difficult, as it is for many women, about the hair falling out and the eyelashes and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Tell me about that experience. Yes. So I suppose I mean, the minute you hear you're going to have chemotherapy, your first thought is, oh, my God, my hair. And you just think it's the worst thing in the world. The thoughts of you it's losing funny, your isn't hair. It's such a big, Absolutely, big you know. Thing. And then on day 15, after your first chemo session, your hair starts to fall out in such lumps that actually you just can't wait to get rid of it. You know, I mean, my kids used to come up behind me and just pull the bits off the back of my hoodie and that. So my eight-year-old son at the time always shaves his dad's head so I had said to him look would he shave my hair for me I suppose we were totally open and honest with the kids once we knew what my diagnosis was and I just felt by involving them and by being as, as open as we could about the whole situation would help them to cope with this massive change in their lives so 
Brian said he would shave my hair, it's so he had great fun putting mohawk shapes and designs <laughs> and everything on my head as I'm bent over the bath. And then my 10 year old had always promised me that he would shave his hair with me. Um, from the day I told them I had cancer, he said, Mom, I'll shave my head with you. So he shaved his head then and my eldest son took the photographs. And then, as I always say, we went downstairs and had dinner because life goes on. It certainly does. You know. um, but some uh, statistics I was I was kind of surprised by over 3000 women in Ireland every year are diagnosed with breast cancer. 30 percent of those will be between the ages of 20 and 15 years, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but there has been an increase in the survival rate from 75 percent to 85 percent. And mortality rates are decreasing each year. Mm-hmm. And there are ever new, more sophisticated medical treatments as well. Absolutely. So there's a lot of positive there's news around it too. I mean, the cancer I had was an oestrogen fed cancer. So my oestrogen levels were feeding it. So now I'm on a tablet for 10 years um, called tamoxifen. And was there a reason for that, Ger, the oestrogen um, feeding it? I don't know. I mean, there's lots of different questions about why, you know, but that's one of the particular types of breast cancer that you can get is an oestrogen positive. It's your body, you know, the hormones. So um, I am now on a tablet called tamoxifen for the next 10 years, and that's to decrease my oestrogen levels in my body. So again, these are all therapies and treatments that have improved so much over the years, thanks to research, thanks to, you know, hard work of men and women in the labs that are just, you know, giving it their best and, and this generation of women are extremely lucky. And you go around with Adrienne McCleary, who's mm-hmm. an outreach nurse with yeah. Breast Cancer Ireland. And particularly with the transition year students, these are young girls. So you're Absolutely, getting them into yeah. early good habits. I mean, the aim is if we can switch a switch in the girl's head at 16, that um, every month when she gets her period, if she checks her breasts, that we will ultimately save lives because if they carry that knowledge into their 20s and 30s and 40s, it's the most perfectly normal thing to do every month to check their breasts. Do you, you think, know. though, going back to that kind of, whether it's Irish women or is it, was it a kind of prudishness, do you think, that stopped Maybe women that's doing it. that? Exactly, and yeah. even the fact that you were saying when you get your period and mm. check your breasts, like to me, when I'm thinking back when I was in school, you just can't imagine I mean, somebody I always coming say your school that, and absolutely. telling you And I always say that to the girls when we go in, you know, that we hardly went into the, the butcher to ask for the chicken fillet breast, you know, you'd be nearly embarrassed. Whereas the TY girls just sit there and they take it all in. And, you know, one school, there was a male teacher sitting beside me. And I remember thinking, wow, look how much life has changed, that he's not embarrassed and they're not embarrassed about us talking about checking breasts. And I was at a graduation in the secondary school in our own local school um, this year. And uh, one of the girls came up to me and she said, um, are you the breast cancer girl and I said I am you know and she said you know I check my breasts every month because of you you know so the message is getting across to the girls and they are taking it in and we have an app called breast aware that you can download on your phone and it sends you a monthly reminder to check your breasts you know and that's the way forward as well with that generation you know well pretend um, the women's podcast listeners are your students that you go into school what is it that you would absolutely tell them I know you can't do it uh, visually I'm sure you have you know props when you do it in schools but what is it that you would tell our listeners just if if they just aren't as aware as they could be that's it I suppose we'd just go through the eight signs you know what the eight signs and symptoms of breast cancer are you know one breast um, swelling significantly bigger than the other, your nipples no longer in line, you know, um, the breast cancer cells are heavy, so they're pulling the breast down. Um, as I said earlier, dimple, like on your face, a dimple on your breast is a sign of breast cancer. Um, it could be anywhere in the breast, so that's why we always say as well to the girls, you know, strip naked to your waist, stand in front of a mirror, put your hands by your side, put your hands on your hips and put your hands up on your on your head. 
just to visually look at yourself. You know, we look at our faces and our hair how many times a day, but, you know, we're rushing out of the shower and putting on body lotion and we're gone, you know. So again, to visually look because you could have a, a dimple anywhere in your breast that you might not see unless you're looking. Um, there's uh, a two rashes then, an inflammation rash where it's like a red marker and you just drew lots of little red dots. And then there is um, an orange peel skin, it's called, where there's a thickening of the skin and it feels like the skin of an orange. And um, then there's the uh, swelling under the arm, your lymph nodes are under your arm and a significant swelling, a, a golf ball shape kind of a swelling under your arm as well. So, again, it's just to get those messages across and then to show the girls how to do a proper breast check. You and know, we can't totally show it now because no. this isn't a visual medium. But yeah. are there some things that you can Well, what we say? recommend is in the shower and that you push um, your thumb over the nail of your little finger and you use the pads of your three fingers. A bit of shower gel on the, on the, on the pads as well. And that you, um, I suppose, the really important thing that we love getting across to women as well is that your breast tissue actually starts one digit below your collarbone. So it oh, goes up that high. It's not just you know the breast itself so that's what's really important to get to know so you that could have a lump up there absolutely, too absolutely yeah, yeah you know and that um, you know we say from bone to bone to your breastbone and then under your arm it's really important that you get your breast tissue because in there if you were to see it after surgery it's actually a teardrop shape you know a breast so um, breast tissue so um, to make sure that the girls are checking the the full area that should be checked and then we show them how to do a prostate check where you actually press in you don't hurt yourself but you do press at the same time to see and then we have a mannequin that has three lumps in it so um, the girls get to feel what a breast lump would feel like so I suppose sure, that's, that's a great very yeah, absolutely because you know obviously we don't want anyone ever to feel it on their yeah. own but at least if they know what they're looking for because that's what a lot of women in, in the workplace would say to us we don't know what we're looking for you know, so this helps them to actually visualise that a breast lump is hard, it's ropey, it doesn't move and it doesn't go away, you know. Right. Now you had a very, obviously it was a traumatic year for you, I'm, I'm imagining. Yeah. Um, it wasn't anything you would ever want or expect no. to happen in your life, but you did get excellent treatment. Absolutely. And yeah, you yeah. haven't a bad word to say about the kind of the help that you got. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose there are women in this country who've been let down badly. And if we look at Gabriel Scali's report into the cervical uh, smear, I mean, I suppose it's about people trusting as well, even though some people might have reason not to trust. I mean, I do feel so sorry for all those women who didn't get the same treatment as me, you know, because when you are thrown into this world that you never knew existed, really, you know, and then you can't believe you're in this world now, you know, I mean, the day I was diagnosed, I remember the girl when they were doing a biopsy, there was a beautiful nurse, Caroline, looking at me and she asked me, was I okay?" And I said to her, look, put it this way, I'd give anything to be at home and do my ironing now, you know, because you just know your world as you know what is now about to change and you've lost control. So I was very fortunate that I got such fantastic support for the Beaumont Hospital with the breast care nurses and there with Arnie Hill and with my um, oncologist, Patrick Morris, you know, but um, and then I had my um, chemo in the bonds. So again, fantastic nurses and the care and the staff and there helps you get through it because it's the kindness and goodness of everyone that gets you through difficult times in your life. So I do um, really feel sorry for the women who never, who didn't feel that they got that because that's not the way it should be, you know, because it's not fair. You know, it should be balanced and it should be equal, all sectors. Yeah, well, it's great that you're doing this volunteer work for Breast Cancer Ireland. It's And the new initiative is backed by Into as well yeah, and it's supported yeah. by insurance brokers Corn Market it's called the Breast Health Education and Awareness Programme mm-hmm. and you're going to continue that for a while are you you That's don't see it, yourself yeah, exactly. giving up anytime no, soon absolutely not I mean I absolutely love what I do and I suppose you can talk about statistics and figures and you know 
but it's the real life story. One day we were in a company and one of the girls came up to me afterwards and she said, it was just your son shaving your hair. She said he was wearing a Liverpool jersey and she went, my son supports Liverpool and is eight. So it just made it so much real for her. So I think, and also I always say that my role there is to show that there's life after a cancer diagnosis. That should the worst case thing happen again, it goes always back to early detection being survival, you know, and just being aware of the signs and symptoms of breast cancer, you know. And you had a mastectomy. I had a mastectomy. But you got through that too. Got through that too. And then I had 16 sessions of chemo over 20 weeks and 33 sessions of radiotherapy. And you're cancer free. Cancer free now. And I mean, as I always say, I don't know what tomorrow brings, but neither do any of you. You know, nobody knows. So again, I'm so grateful. I'm in the system. I'm being constantly monitored and checked and that, you know, so, um, you know, there's a phrase that says everybody has two lives. Your second life begins the moment you think your first is over. And it's so true for a cancer diagnosis. Very wise. Well, I can't think of a better role model than someone to go in and send those brilliant, important messages and get them young, as they say. Absolutely. And those young women who are going through their lives with that knowledge, um, thanks to people like you. So very grateful you're doing it. And to get into the schools and to the teachers. And again, thanks to Cormarket for their support, because, you know, it it is all about education. And, you know, you know, the teachers pass it on then as the educators as well, you know, and it's just the statistics of, you know, the amount of women who are primary school teachers. And I mean, men can get breast cancer too. One percent of the male population can get it. And they're the exact same symptoms as a woman would get. So it's very important. And also men have wise partners, sisters, nieces, daughters, you know, so that's very important that they also know Completely. the signs and, and symptoms. And sometimes these uh, subjects are just talked about as if they are only female specific, but they're not. Because as you say, we all have Absolutely. people who care about I us mean, who are, are we men. We did a talk once in a cement factory up in Drogheda and one <laughs> guy came up to me afterwards and his wife had just been diagnosed and he said, what can I do to help yeah. her? So, you know, again, to support men and, yeah. and that role too, that you know, it's not easy being the partner of the person who's exactly. been diagnosed. But sure, isn't it great that now we can talk about these things but when you think for so many decades all of this stuff that happens to women as a normal part of their lives whether mm-hmm. it's menstruation menopause breast cancer all these things that happen to us we kind of had to keep Absolutely. quiet about yeah, and there yeah. is something really liberating about totally. you going in Absolutely, to those teenagers yeah. telling them as it is yeah. no shame and no embarrassment yeah. and just to make sure we look after ourselves that's you know yeah. we can go in and say but it's their reaction always amazes me because I'd say to them girls I'd have been under the table yeah. if somebody came in and told us about touching and it's checking terrible. our breasts you know? know so that's what it's 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 fantastic that I'd they have are off so for that class, yeah think. you know I mean they just and they are so all uh, interested and I suppose the app then is in their world kind of so that's what works as well with them you know Well Ger thank you so much for coming in I think your message is great and you deliver it really well and it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month even though it's at the very nearly end of it but we're here at Talking About It and um, maybe you'll come back in again and tell us when you're doing some new things as well Great thank you so much for having me Roisin thank you The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition Sumptuously smooth dark chocolate Now, the Manoa Naharan Women of Ireland Fund is a 1.8 million fund over three years created by Social Innovation Fund Ireland in partnership with Bank of America and the Department of Rural and Community Development. It's the very first fund in Ireland to support charities and social enterprises that are working to increase the economic mobility of women and it's designed to help those organisations expand their business acumen, drive growth 
and deepen their impact across Ireland. It's all about empowering women to move into new or more sustainable employment. Cathy Sheridan spoke to Deirdre Mortel, the CEO of Social Innovation Fund Ireland and representatives of two recipients of the awards, Sarah Phillips, Chair of Transgender Equality Network Ireland and Amica Chooks, Team Lead on Irish Refugee Council's Employment Programme. Deirdre, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you have an amazing overview. This is an amazing scheme. There's a lot of money involved. It's a, a very respectable indeed. This isn't just throwing token amounts at women. This is serious. Tell us all about Manana Heron and the fund. Thanks, Cathy. Um, well, Manana Heron Fund uh, is a, a fund created by Social Innovation Fund Ireland. Uh, it's 1.8 million euro um, over three years, which will support innovative solutions that support women who struggle to get into the labour force to get jobs. And we're not just talking about jobs. We're talking about decent jobs, which I think is a really critical difference. So we're looking at, at the end of the three years, a thousand women who will struggle to get decent work will be in decent and sustainable employment. And we've created that with Bank of America, who've donated half of those funds and partnered with the Department of Rural and Community Development using our own dormant accounts funds. So that's where the 1.8 million euro comes from. And each individual award, what is it worth, Deirdre? Um, it's worth somewhere between 50,000 a year and 150,000 a year. Um, and what we provide is an award is made up of grants, uh, so that's cash, but also a budget for non-financial supports. And what we're thinking about there is that uh, for the programmes that we support, which have already shown that they work, um, it takes different skills to create a programme and to come up with it and develop it than it does to grow it and scale it. And so we provide extra mentoring, business planning and other supports to support those organisations to actually grow and scale the programmes. And who were you looking at now when you were awarding, when you were making the awards? What were your first considerations? Well, we were looking at what are the groups of women in Ireland who struggle to get into decent work? And look, there's a wide range of groups. Um, and I have to say, uh, we had an enormous number of applications for this programme, which were incredible high quality. We made six grants in the end. Um, and so we're looking at groups of women like lone parents, uh, like refugee and asylum seeking women, like trans women, like women living in rural areas where there are few jobs or where transport's a major issue, um, and, and a wide range of other issues, uh, women and issues as well. Um, so what we were really looking to do was to say, how can we find programmes that are working with those particular target groups of women and who are helping them to actually get into decent employment? And if that's working, how can we get more and more women to have access to those programmes? This has been going for how long? Is this the first year? This is the first time we've done it. Um, and we, uh, we uh, sought advice from the National Women's Council and also from Dr. Ursula Barry and UCD to help us make sure that what we're looking at is really like. So both of them know a lot about gender in the labour market. We know about how do you build successful programmes and organisations. And together with their advice and with funding from Bank of America and the Department of Rural and Community Development, we've put together this package of supports over three years. Now, Amaka, what did your organisation do to deserve this? Hi, the recruits are women, the asylum seekers um, who uh, came into the country without anything, without um, any sense of direction. So we pick up these women and uh, we prepare them for uh, employment. 
It's good to give people a sense of uh, direction. Mm. You know, um, we also um, talk about uh, mental health with them because, I mean, if you come into a different country where you know nothing about the country where you have no one to direct you, and from the first day you, you know, we pick up the uh, asylum seekers and we, you know, prepare them on how to, you know, go about things in Ireland, especially getting a job. You have some particular expertise in this because you were an asylum seeker yourself. Yeah. So what kind of insight did that give you into that struggle to to make your way into the job market? You have a, you have a background in social care, I think. Yes. So what was that like for you? Coming into this country for the first time was, you know, very hard, you know, for, for me, you know, for any other person, I, I suppose, you know, that it's coming into a place where you know nothing about. So, um, yeah, I've lived here for 18 years now. I can tell very well that, you know, uh, what they do, you know, in Irish Refugee Council preparing women for employment is a huge you know, uh, it has a huge impact on, you know, individuals and that goes a long way, you know, in uh, whatever they are, are doing because uh, when I came into this country, I have no one to direct me, to instruct me. I don't know where to go, what to do, you know, uh, but with the few women that we've, you know, supported lately, you know, I can assure you that, yes, they are fully prepared to face any challenges in around uh, Ireland and getting a job. How did you manage in the end? Uh, for my breakthrough? Oh, for myself, yes. I find out that, you know, I need people, you know, actually to, to get, you know, around um, whatever I'm going to do. So I, first of all, I think I decided to go back to school, you know, to... Uh, upskill myself, you know, to be able to, because things are done differently here. So uh, when I get into uh, school, I made friends and, you know, I talked to people about my situation and I got trained and, you know, I pick up uh, a job as a carer and, you know, that's how I, I actually break through, you know, I, I pick up a carer. I find out that, okay, one and one, I'm able to do this, I'm able to do that for myself. And people are always there to direct me on, you know, how to get around. And the difference now is that you can now pass this this rich experience on to other women. Oh, yeah, yes. From yes. day one nearly. From, yeah, from day one nearly, yes. yes. I, I mean, my time with, uh, you know, in Irish Refugee Council, I've... You know, I just find the happiness, you know, to actually talk to people because I'm coming from there. I know what it takes. I know what it is. So I'm able to direct them. I'm able to say, listen, this and this is what you need to be able to go through the whole process. Yeah. So you're the team lead on the Irish Refugees Council's employment program. Is it just you or are, are, there, are there many of you? spreading out across the country doing this? I uh, know it's, it's many of us that's doing it. It's not just myself, mm. you know, so, uh, yeah. So there are, there, there, there's a number of you? Yeah, there's a number of us, yes. Okay. That's, and what difference has this made to you, has, has this award made to you? Will this, will this 
allow you to employ more people? Would it allow you to fund more women who are seeking work? Or oh, how yeah, of course. Yes. So, in, I mean, I've got more confidence now, you know, to be able to talk to people, to be able to, you know, recruit people, you know, show them what to do and how to do things. Like, there must be issues of mental health in the community where people have so much difficulty on top of the regular difficulties the rest of us all have in the culture we're very familiar with. Mental health must be a huge problem. Yes, yes, huge one, you know. Um, Actually, that's what we need to look at again, you know, because it's it's very difficult and I can tell you that a lot of people are suffering, you know, mentally, you know, everything is not... It's not okay, you know. It's hard on its own to travel miles away to a country where you know nothing about. And it's another thing to come in and you're just floating. You're not settled. Maybe your status is not, you know, you are worried about that. You are worried about a lot of things. So mental issue, uh, mental health issue is a problem. And, um, you know, it's if we don't tackle it, you know, right from the beginning. Like, I have women, actually women, who were actually on the streets, you know, after a while. You know, what I mean by on the street is, you know, going mad, you know, like you see them on the road and they are talking to themselves and you think everything is all right with them, but everything is not all right, you know. There are lots of issues with mental health, with, you know, asylum seekers, there's a lot of issue on that mental health and I think it's something that we need to look at, you know, uh, seriously. And that also because if they have, if they've come in with children, you know, that again will affect everything. You know, probably they don't have time for the children and they just allow the children to wander, to wander away. You know, mother is, if you're mother, you are supposed to look after your child and then if you're not okay, if you're not well, you won't be able to do anything. And sometimes we hide these things, we don't talk about it, but we suffer for it because where I come from is a stigma. You don't just tell people that something is wrong with you, but something is wrong with you, actually. Mm-hmm. you know. And that also uh, will you know, um, reflect when you're dealing with people outside. You know, you see them, sometimes they scream, they, sh- they talk, you know, they give out and you think everything is okay. But actually, everything is not okay. Right. Um, Sarah, Chair of Transgender Equality Network Ireland. Tell us about yourself, first of all. Oh, <laughs> what do you want to know? Um, well, yes. I mean, you've, 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 you've been in this struggle for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in the trans community probably for over 26, 27 years now. Um, I came out many, many years ago and transitioned. How many years ago? Uh, 26 years ago, to be exact. Um, um, but I've been involved in Tenny since its foundation in 2006 and I've been the chair for the last seven years. Um, but uh, I suppose the struggle for trans rights or inclusion in society has been going on much longer than that. Yeah. It was. It must have been. It must have been quite a thing to come out yeah. as trans twenty six years ago. It has been uh, a difficult process, and I suppose you know across all different facets of life. Um, and you know, I had at the time I had was married, had a family, um, which was obviously going to be an issue. I also had 
a very high-powered job at the time uh, in a multinational company in a very uh, masculine-orientated sector. Um, And therefore, it was always going to be a struggle uh, coming out in that environment um, and trying to keep, um, you know, the family to come along on that journey with me or, for that matter, trying to keep and stay within the... uh, the construction industry in which I've had most experience. Is that where you were working at the time? That's where I still work. Really? Yeah. And, sir, I, I find this unimaginable that you came out at a time like that. At least now, this is very much in the in common discourse. We talk a lot about it. You may not, you may not have all the empathy that you need or the understanding, uh, but nonetheless, at least now people understand what is, you know, they understand what trans means. But back then it must have been horrific, was it? Um, f- first of all, it's not as uh, great as you might think right <laughs> no. now. Um, no. I, should, I should clarify that because not everybody understands. In fact, a large proportion of society doesn't actually understand. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would have been much more difficult in the 90s. It would have been much more difficult in the early 2000s. Um, it would have been, and it was, very difficult to get people to understand why you needed to do this, that this was who you were. Um, and it was also a struggle then for people to hold on to jobs, hold on to, uh, you know, housing, have appropriate housing and and any services whatsoever because, uh, you know, healthcare was little, uh, was very little. There wasn't much services there and they've actually regressed in recent times um, rather than improving. Um, while we have had huge... Um, you know, uh, advances in legal rights. Um, a lot of societal uh, understanding has actually taken a back, a step backwards um, to the extent that there is a slight backlash at the moment, uh, specifically within the media uh, around trans people and around especially their access to healthcare um, and around an understanding that this is not a mental disorder. This is something uh, that is a variation of humankind. And Sarah, as um, Tenney's um, chair, you've done a study of the experiences of trans people in the labour market. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, one of the most astounding things we found, uh, Cathy, was that uh, 49% of trans people were unemployed. But more importantly, 25% of them weren't even trying to get employment. And an awful lot of that, anecdotally, was down to the fact that they were afraid to actually apply for jobs because they didn't feel they would get the opportunity past interview or even past CV uh, application that they would get the opportunity to get into those jobs. So that was very distressing for us, I have to say. While Sarah, can I just ask you something? When a person, in, in the, a trans person is applying for a job, do they feel it necessary to say this? Not necessarily, but you have to remember that when you put your CV in and you start giving your experience from the past, a lot of that experience sometimes is around jobs that you may have held in a previous gender. So therefore, that experience or that uh, understanding of where you've come from or even references that you might have will be based on maybe your previous dead name or uh, your previous experience. So trans people are very afraid of putting that down because it automatically outs them. And then when you automatically out them, when you even getting to interview process, you have this impression that the person sitting opposite you will have unconscious bias in that interview because they will be thinking, well, maybe this person needs time off for 
um, medical care, maybe how are the rest of the staff going to react? There's a number of factors that they will consider within that. And therefore, trans people think this out before they even apply for a job. Um, and then secondly, one of the biggest problems is that a lot of trans people, especially trans women, are skilled sometimes in very masculine sectors in very masculine areas and therefore when they're now having transitioned looking for a new job one maybe they don't want to go back into that uh, area or two they may be afraid they might be discriminated against if they do you're still in construction sir are you still with the same company um i'm not with the same company that i was with in the 90s Mm. um i've been with the company i'm with now for the last 15 years um and while i transitioned before um, joining the company, I had a really weird, I suppose, a situation that I, when I applied for the job, I didn't, I didn't think that I would be given the opportunity to get that job. I was looking for a steady role uh, because I'd been previously running my own uh, consultancy business, um, and I was looking for a steady role in order to go through medical care. And the problem was is that I didn't believe I was going to be given a proper opportunity, so I actually went for the job interview as a male even though I had transitioned previously. Um, got the job and then a number of months later spoke to my boss and said, actually, you know, I need to tell you something um, and explain to him about uh, my gender identity and actually who I was in, in my the rest of my life. And in fairness, the company at that point, 15 years ago, supported me um, through coming out within work, um, both with clients and with my colleagues and as I say, I've been with them now for the last 15 years and still progressing. So I suppose, quote, you're one of the lucky ones. <laughs> I've always said I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm yes. one of the lucky ones, both in employment, with my family, with my friends, um, you know, with my neighbours. I've been very much one of the lucky ones. So now you've got this award, uh, the Manana Heron funding, what difference is that going to make? I think it's going to make a huge difference, Um you know, obviously, as you mentioned earlier about the survey, we have quite a huge amount of information around trans people uh, accessing the workplace and specifically around trans women in the workplace. Um, you know, and again, I think as Ms. Deirdre mentioned earlier, uh, you know, sometimes when trans women do get into the workplace, it's not always quality jobs. It's not always uh, what they're skilled for. It's not always what they've been educated for. Um, so I think for us, it's going to enable us to reach out to the community, especially within rural Europe or rural Ireland, um, where, uh, you know, it's much more difficult to live. It's much more difficult to, uh, navigate this, uh, life. And therefore we can reach out to those women out there who need support. They need training. We're going to try and provide some mentorships and some internships and try and make sure that they have the skill sets for first of all applying for jobs and being confident enough to employ apply for jobs and then help for hopefully help them into jobs after that into employment. Dear, this all sounds brilliant. Are you going to continue to play a role in this now? Once you award the money, are you, are you going to sort of look in on this every so often, or will you have monthly workshops, or how is this going to work with you? Yeah, we will actually have monthly workshops. So, oh, um, yes. Uh, so the award consists of a grant. Um, uh, obviously, financial support is critical uh, to supporting the programs to continue and grow and improve. Um, but also, a big part of this is bringing the um, awardees together to learn together and learn from each other. So we'll be providing technical supports in terms of things like communications training, strategic planning, and mentoring. But also. 
bringing the different groups together to learn together and learn from each other is a very big part. Mm. So building a community of practice. Um, there are also a number of other grantees. Um, we have Dress for Success Dublin. Um, we have a Westmeath local uh, development company with a project called Here Comes the Girls. And yeah, tell us about that. That sounds. I mean, we know about Dress for Success, but the Westmeath project is very interesting. That's a county council-sponsored project, is it? Yeah, so local development company. Yes, well, yes, yes. Yeah. So it's it's similar. So, well, here comes the girls. Is a, a very interesting one because it. Uh, uh, we have a lady called Patricia McKenna who runs it, and she. Uh, so County Westmeath has a real problem with jobs. Full stop. Okay, it's a rural area. There are no big employers. Um, it's got a big town, Mullingar. But very few jobs available. So, so Board Namona would have been the big traditional employer there, and we and we all know from the news what's happening with Board Namona at the moment. So they work with employers to look at what are the training needs they have, where they can't find staff to fill the jobs, and then they recruit local women, many of them coming from rural areas who haven't been able to access uh, jobs before, and train them for jobs that they know exist at the end. But again, we're talking about decent jobs. We're not talking about zero-hour contracts here. And so what is guaranteed at the end of that training programme is that every woman who completes the programme will get an interview for those jobs. What's a decent job, Deirdre? So it could be in retail, it could be in social care, it could be in management, it could be in all different kinds of things. They could um, be zero hours so as well, though. I mean, no, isn't the, is, no. So one of the things I really love about the Here Comes for the Girls project is that they refuse to place people in contracts that they don't consider ethical, decent work. So so they take a view. It's not just training for whatever old job happens to be out there that nobody wants. Uh, so they do take a view. They take a look at the contracts that are being offered and they take a view on that. Uh, so we are very exercised about the fact that it is decent work, as are they, yeah. I, I should say. Yeah. So that's fantastic. And then the other project that's also being supported is on Kassan's uh, Women's Education Project, uh, which many people will know runs in Tala and the wider Tala area, but which is actually scaling up all around the country as well. Is it indeed? That's right. That is a wonderful project. Yeah. I've so it's been an eye on that for many years. Yeah. That was Catherine Zappone and, and Mary Louise. Mary Louise Gilligan, yeah, yes. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going strong and getting stronger. That's right. And, and so going back to the original uh, grassroots work that they did with women in Tala a long time ago, providing education for women. Second chance education, really, in many ways, wasn't it? That's Isn't right. It? And uh, so women often living in poverty, many of them lone parents, not all, but many of them lone parents um, um, and or all other kinds of backgrounds where you find it hard to access employment. Um, just thinking about, like, what is the need for this work? Um, I've been involved in women's issues for many, many years, but you, I was you have. Tell us a bit about that. Actually, you, 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 you've got quite a sort of a rich background of involvement in various uh, non-profit organisations. That's right. Uh, so, well, I, I've worked in many non-profits through the years, but I suppose I, I've been a founding board member of Women for Election, um, uh, and that's about trying to get more women involved in uh, political life in Ireland, um, with with some success in the last seven years. Um, but also going right back to being a student activist around feminist issues and things like working in UCC to try and get a female doctor when we only had a male doctor in his 60s, part time. So uh, so I guess those those kind of grassroots experiences have happened for me through the years. But when we were looking at the statistics around women in poverty in Ireland, even I was shocked if we just take lone parents, for example. So 85% of lone parents in Ireland are women. And if we look at... 
what is the econo- what is the economic mobility for for lone parents? Um, we find that it's actually decreased um, as we come out of the recession. So we might think it's increased, but in fact, it's actually decreased. Why, so, why is that? So I don't think we know why, but we know something needs to be done. So. I mean, if we just take between 2012 and 2017, one in 11 low parents, one in 11 lone parents were living in poverty. That's now gone up to one in five. So as we pull out of recession, the level of poverty among lone parents has actually doubled. And that's a task uh, statistic. So that was one of the things that informed us as we designed this program. And lone parents are not a target, the target group here. But it's an example of how women can really get stuck in poverty. Um, and if lone parents are having children, we need children in Ireland. We need children to, to keep ourselves being vibrant and moving forward and still existing in one or two generations time. But what are we doing that women who are raising parents alone are living in poverty and perhaps creating that multi-generational poverty? So we're looking at what, as Ancasson say, what is that one generation solution uh, to get women and children out of poverty and stay out of poverty in the next generation. And that's, and that's just talking about one group. We know we've just learned from Sarah, trans women face enormous barriers. Mm. I've learned so much from Sarah about the kinds of barriers that are faced, uh, particularly in male-dominated industries, and also from Amaka around just how hard it is for refugee women or refugees at all to get jobs. So there's very different barriers uh, right across But what we're trying to do is say, well, what can trans women learn from refugee women, learn from lone parents? Because there are common barriers and there are innovations here that can be transferred across the groups. Uh, So that's the point of not just providing a grant and taking a look every now and then, but actually saying, let's learn together. So let's have monthly workshops and check in. Maka, what do you think you have to teach to the women you meet every day? What, what, What will be new to them? A lot of things are new to them, you know. I mean, it's a different culture, different, everything is different. So when they come into the country, they are quite confused. Um, they don't know where to go, how to do things, you know, because, I mean, culture, the culture is different. So um, we've been able to, you know, slot in some things, you know, apart from preparing them for work, we've been able to, you know, like I composed something on culture and diversity. Give me an example of the kind of thing that 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 you would you would be making them aware of. Where just, the, what what part of the culture in particular do you think is most difficult to deal with? Um well um there is I, I just there's nothing in particular that's most difficult, you know, it depends how you see it. You know, the only thing is that um culture, I know that culture is two way process. So um if you come into a country you know nothing about it and the people you meet are also looking to, you know, get something from you, you know. So you have to uh adjust and you know, learn the culture that you meet here. So you're moving forward. You can know how things are, are being done. So we've been able to tell them that these are the things that you can expect in Ireland. And probably it's not the same where you're coming from, but you just have to take it because this is the way it is. Well, give you me know. an example, Amaka. Example, example is, you know, <laughs> for instance, it's a... Uh, 
um, saying hi to someone in Ireland from my own experience, you know, um, probably sometimes they don't even answer you. They don't even respond. The Irish know? person won't. Yeah, sometimes, yes. Yeah. So, and, you know, you just, you don't take it personal. You know, sometimes they are busy. They might just be thinking of something else, you know, compared to where we are coming from, where everyone is saying, hi, how are you? How do you do? Where are you going to? Where are you coming from? You know, so things like that, you need to be, you know, aware of it. And, I mean, taking a, you know, a cue, you know, in maybe you go to the uh, supermarket, you buy something there, you need to be on a queue to, to pay or get what you want. And where we're coming from, it probably it's not the same. Everyone is stretching at the same time, you know. So, uh, yeah, things like that, that you need to be, you know, aware of so that you don't, you know, get worried about yeah. you know yeah. about about the whole thing and as you are learning to you know adjust and integrate you also bring your own you know to them too which i think it's it's a good thing because that's how you know that's it's all about diversities we are different so well you do have obviously something to bring to this country yeah. and what do you think you can teach us well, we talked about food, you know, food is another thing. And I know uh, some of them, you know, are in direct provisions. And, you know, I can hear most of them complain about the type of food they offer there. You know, uh, it's quite different from the ones they are used to. So, um, yeah, we can, you know, offer to prepare our food sometimes and showcase it and see what people say about it. You know, I know from my experience that, you know, if you bring an idea, you know, particularly uh, with food, you know, people try to, you know, uh, text and see what it looks like, yes. you know, and make a comment. So so while you are trying this one, you can also bring your own and people will also, yeah. um, you know. Uh, is, is life easier? Is life a little bit easier now? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so much because <laughs> life is a little bit easier. You know, it's good to, when you come into a place, you understand their way of doing things and you adjust and, you know, uh, it becomes easier for you to just move along with any other person. Sarah, in terms of, of your life now and what you can teach to people like me who overstate it, how delighted everybody is with the trans movement, <laughs> what, would, what, what do you have to say to people? Um, I think the first thing I suppose our whole community is looking for is uh, understanding and respect. It's purely to realise that we are human beings the same way as everybody else is, uh, that this is not a mental disorder that it may have been thought of in previous years. Um, I think so for society, especially Tenny's uh, own vision for Ireland is to where trans people can be respected and can fully participate in society. Um, so for me, it's about giving our own uh, community confidence, about giving our own community uh, the opportunity to be themselves, but also for us to integrate and for society to allow us to integrate into uh, every facet of our daily lives. Um, so, yeah, I think and that and that goes back to, I suppose, the program that we're running uh, uh, with Manana Hearn. Um, is very much around giving, empowering trans women uh, and giving them confidence 
to be able to say, well, actually, this is me. And, you know, if you just take me as I am, then maybe you'll get actually a really good employee. Maybe you'll get somebody who is giving you everything of themselves and therefore may be more productive than somebody who might be hiding something in their own lives and doesn't want uh, people to know. And and that's what we tend to find. And when, when you can express yourself, uh, you know, and, and I think if you look at a lot of the big multinational companies, they run these programs called Bring Yourself to Work, your, your real self to work. And an awful lot of it is if you look at a trans person, they are bringing their real self to work because they've taken these massive steps to show you who they really are. And when you have that opportunity, I think you will get a very productive employee. You will get a very productive and confident and empowered individual. So I think that's, for me, that's the work we do within Tenny, um, but also within the wider trans community is to try and just, you know, get out there, be ourselves, be who we are and, you know, try and integrate and get allow, allow us to be integrated into the rest of society. Deirdre, finally, you have to start all this, these w- amazing women, you have to start by being very brave. Is that what you're encountering as you go through the awardees in this case? Or are you just thinking, these are women, they need economic mo- mobility and this is what we're out to get now? Have you stopped thinking these are very brave women? Or are you thinking... Just let's get decent jobs with them. By definition, these are brave women. It's just by definition. It's not what we want or what we need. It's who we have. Uh, So it's a fact, but it's phenomenal to have the privilege to meet and work with over the next three years women who, uh, who have shown and are pledging to show even more bravery. Um, I can't forget the fact that 25% of all the women in Ireland who work are in low pay. How does that skew, how does that fit with the fact that we all know that talent is equally distributed throughout the population? So it's not like 25% of the women have lower education than the men. So how is it that the women are ending up in low pay uh, when we know the talent is evenly distributed? And so this programme is just one tiny step towards trying to close that gap by making sure that a group of women can access these programmes to help them jump over that low pay gap and into decent and sustainable work. Um, But it's going to take much more. um, And we're very proud to be working with um, Dr. Ursula Berry in UCD and the National Women's Council to look at also what can we all learn as a country and how can we inform policy by learning from these programmes over the next three years what does work and what maybe needs to change at government or agency level as well. So we want to make sure we capture the learning. Uh, We're not limited to getting a thousand women into decent work um, and to enabling uh, the women we're supporting to go further with their bravery and courage but also with their skills and talents. Deirdre, Sarah and Amaka, thank you so much for coming in and maybe we'll have another chat this time next year to see how it's been going. That'll be phenomenal. It will be. It will be. The very best of luck to you all. Thank you. 
Just a quick reminder before we go about Family Fun Unplugged by Peter Cosgrave, that book which is full of riddles and brain teasers. And we have got a great hamper from Penguin Ireland to celebrate its publication. You get a chance to win the hamper worth €150, including classic board games, activities, arts and crafts, and of course, a copy of Family Fun Unplugged. To enter, we want your diversions. We want to know how you get your kids off the screens and indeed your partner or anybody else in your family off the screens. Tell us the ways that you found that worked. And you just have to email us that on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. That's the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. And tell us how you get them away from their devices. And you could win that brilliant hamper. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks to all our guests today, Jer Collins, Deirdre Mortel, Sarah Phillips and Amica Shooks. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Stitcher, SoundCloud and iTunes. And of course, because this is an Irish Times podcast, you can also find us on irishtimes.com. And if you like what you hear, go to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by me with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Roisin Ingle and I'll talk to you next time. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com